This is Science Modeling Talks, the podcast that features top modeling instructors and thought leaders sharing ideas. I'm your host, Mark Royce. I want to remind you to visit sciencemodelingtalks.com, where you can access a lot of extra content and learn more about us and the American Modeling Teachers Association, the professional organization that we promote. Okay, let's get started with today's episode. My guest for this episode is Dr. Mina Bagdev. She currently teaches high school chemistry and psychology at Hamilton High School in Chandler Unified School District in Arizona. She just completed her 27th year of teaching. Mina has been teaching modeling chemistry for 10 years now and worked to launch STEM Teachers PHX, an affiliation of the AMTA. She has a bachelor's degree in chemistry, two masters of education in curriculum instruction, as well as in educational leadership. And she holds a PhD in industrial organizational psychology and is passionate about finding ways to close the academic opportunity gaps experienced by minority students and is focused on equity work at the school, district, and local community levels. When she's not teaching high school, Mina's work involves facilitating and leading workshops. Here's my interview with Mina. Hi, Mina. Hi, Mark. How are you doing? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. I'm uh, excited to talk with you today about your position in the modeling community and the work you're doing. And so let's, let's get started. Let me ask you to share... Uh, a little bit about who you are, what you do, and uh, your passions, and then we'll go from there. Okay. I have been an educator, I think, for over 25 years now. Uh, Six years were in England, and then I moved to the United States in 98. I started teaching full-time at Champion Unified District in 2000. Um. Initially, I was in the junior high school, and then I moved to the high school about 11, 12 years ago, which is when I started doing modeling chemistry. So um, I was introduced to modeling chemistry by Phil Root, so shout out to Phil Root there. Um, He basically sold me on this idea that teaching chemistry should be done Uh, from a real conceptual standpoint, which was always my belief system anyway. But he showed me a way to really focus in on those concepts and also to um, teach it from a historical perspective, which was something that I had never thought about before. But once I started finding out more about modeling and how the chemistry storyline is put together, I was sold hook, line, and sinker. I've never looked back. So I've been modeling for just over 10 years now. Yeah. Awesome. So when you first got introduced to modeling, what did you discover at that time? And, and it, like, did you go to a workshop? What happened there? So I was thrown into this brand new school where I was given the chemistry standards and told to go teach. <laughs> <laughs> And those chemistry standards were so broad that I had no idea of where to start even and how far to take it. Where does honors chemistry 
start? Where does honors chemistry stop? Where does AP chemistry start? Where does AP chemistry stop? You know, I had no clue about the breadth or the depth to which, which I should teach. So my initial contact with Phil, um, he introduced me to um, the modeling community and I started to work with Phil um, on some of the um, paperwork that the modeling community puts out for the chemistry curriculum. And I started reading those teacher notes. The teacher notes were my guideline. They were my lifeline in that first year of teaching chemistry. And really um, just having it pointed out to me what the misconceptions that the students have gave me such a such an advanced level of understanding of what was going to happen in my classroom before I even got into my classroom. So then I was able to gear my lessons towards helping students either address existing misconception they may have, may have already come in with or to avoid um, helping to avoid them developing some misconceptions. Mm-hmm. Did you ever attend one of the workshops, the modeling workshops? Uh-huh. Yes. So uh, my first workshop that I could get into was actually a physical science workshop at ASU. And so I spent my summer um, learning how to um, address some classroom issues or, or classroom setup, uh, how to engage students in conversation, how to help them engage in um, the lab work. Uh, and so my first, my first modeling session was a physical science session. And then I did the chemistry one session. So I was able to really focus my chemistry teaching using that workshop. So what key methods and and, uh, insights did you gain through the workshops? For me, it was really um, facilitating those discussions between students. Like whiteboarding can be approached in so many different ways. And Mm. how do we how do we get all students engaged in those conversations that help them to cognitively engage in those complex ideas and verbalize them? Because I I truly honestly believe that when students think about what they're going to say and how they're going to say it, that is where the true learning for them occurs because that is embedding the information that we are trying to put across that's embedding it into their brains so that they can um, they can know it they can truly know it so um, for me especially the modeling chemistry courses that I that I took and that I've co-led with Larry um, really it's the discussions is where the rich learning happens mm. So I know you're involved with an organization in Phoenix called STEM Teachers PHX, I think, or STEM Teachers Phoenix. Tell me about that. So STEM Teachers Phoenix is part of the STEM Teachers XYZ community. Um, 
at one point I had attended a modeling leadership course in New York City, um, and that was hosted by STEM Teachers New York. And STEM Teachers New York City basically have this, uh, it's this organization where they provide STEM workshops for teachers by teachers about teaching. And the three of us that attended from Phoenix, that was Wendy, um, Chantal, and myself, the three of us were so excited by this idea of a local community providing workshops, providing support for STEM teachers, that we we sat down um, after a day with the uh, STEM Teachers NYC people and said, how can we do this in Phoenix? And so when we came back home, we we launched it. We, we started STEM Teachers Phoenix, and now there's a group of STEM Teachers communities all over the nation and doing doing very similar things. So we kind of all work together, but we're all separate little entities. And it, it was really amazing to be able to pull um, elementary and... Um, community college and uh, K-12 teachers all together and lead workshops for them on how to, um, how to engage students in, in science or how to teach science. And a lot of the workshops that we do are, are grounded in Phoenix. They were grounded in modeling. Uh, we originally started up under the umbrella of AMTA um, and Colleen was nice enough to help us get started and to um, allow us to use the AMTA umbrella so that we can set this thing up, get our EIN number, start collecting um, some money so that we could run workshops. But it's basically all voluntary. It's all voluntary work. Our presenters are... Um, they work on a voluntary basis and our board all works on a voluntary basis and, and we just have a really great community of educators who are passionate about STEM workshops. So you can check us out at stemteachersphx.org. I read you said that uh, words matter and you mentioned that, you know, how often microaggressions or just throwaway careless comments and uh, how even they can come across as intended as a compliment. Talk to me about that idea that, that words matter. So a lot of microaggressions are actions. They're just small actions that we do or don't do in our classroom. So for example, uh, an action might be having a test on a religious holiday that is not a, a mainstream Christian holiday. Um, that can signal to students that you don't really care about their culture and how their culture impacts their, their school life. Um, in terms of what we say to students, um, for example, if you were to, um, if, if we were in a classroom together and the teacher said to you, 
Hey Mark, help Mina with that math. So that signals to the female student that the men are the ones that can, or the male students are the ones that can do math, whereas girls are the ones that need the help. So um, it's not meant. It doesn't come from a bad place. The the teacher is just trying to help let that peer tutoring go on in the classroom that we really want. But um, we need to be really cognizant and we need to be very intentional about recognizing that there are uh, inequities or perceived inequities or stereotypes that exist that we can actively be combating. So if we could, um, if we could just try and be cognizant of that, and I'm not saying never ask a male student to help a female student with math, but if that is something that happens a lot in your classroom, then that signaling um, microaggressions are tiny things that happen over and over and over and over again. And that's when the signaling becomes very um, powerful, I, I guess is the word I'm looking for. Um, and so when, we, when, that signal, when that signaling is repeated, that's when it has its impact. So if you're always asking the male students to help the female students with the math, there's, there's going to be a problem because what you're, in, what you're doing while you're trying to get help with the peer tutoring for students who are struggling is signaling that the, that the boys are better at math than the girls. Um, if you comment on, if you compliment a non-white student on their accent, um, if that happens even a couple of times, something like that, it can only happen a couple of times. And it sort of makes you as a person, and I've had this happen to me personally, where people often comment on how articulate I am or how what my accent sounds like or um, um, asking me where I'm from because, you know, when you look at me, you're going to expect maybe a different accent to come out of my um out of my face. You're going to expect the Indian accent because I am of Indian origin. And so when I come out with this British accent, people kind of, I know that their curiosity is piqued and I know that they're not trying to um, put me down in any way, shape or form. But if I could tell you the hundreds and hundreds of times that happens to me, huh. it gets wearing. Yeah. Right, and it sends messages that a person like me shouldn't have this accent, or a person a person like me shouldn't be so articulate, or a person that looks like me shouldn't be able to um, communicate quite as effectively as I do. And those are all microaggressions, and often they're meant as compliments. Often they're meant as like you're trying to show interest in who I am, but. Those kinds of things get really wearing for minority students. So just kind of, you know, um, as you have conversations, as you try and get to know who your students are, just be cognizant because words are very, very powerful and we need to be intentional in what we say and how we say it. You also said that uh, the brains, people's brains are deeply rooted in culture 
and that leads to our beliefs and approaches to even uh, teaching as teachers and learning as students. Um, talk to me about that comment and um, what your thoughts are on that. So um, our brains are deeply, deeply rooted in culture. So everything that we have learned, we have learned by messages that are in our surroundings. And so as an Indian um my brain is deeply rooted in the Indian culture and my belief systems are deeply rooted in, in the culture in which I was brought up. And part of that um, deep-rooted belief system is how I approach school. So as a person of Indian origin, um, I was told from the day I could speak that education is the most important thing that I will ever do. Um, education, I have to be successful at school. I cannot fail at school because if I fail at school, um, my life won't, won't pan out to be successful. Um, if I also Indian people are, uh, the Indian culture is deeply rooted, or it was when I was growing up, was deeply rooted in this idea that, um, intelligence is fixed. And so I grew up be believing in this fixed intelligence idea uh, that Indian people are genetically smarter than people from other races. And so being smarter, if I failed at school, then I am letting the Indians, other Indians down because I'm not upholding this idea that Indians are smarter. And that puts, and uh, that really, for our minority Asian students, it's a lot of pressure to grow up with. You're holding up the banner for every other Asian person out there, or Indian person, in my case, Indian person out there. And so to fail was literally not an option. Um, if I did that, I let the family down. Well, I let myself down, I let the family down. And then I let all the other Indians down because Indians are smarter than everybody else. Hmm. Wow. So in the context of your classroom, how does this understanding about these issues influence the way you teach? So my understanding of the fact that these stereotypes and these cultural beliefs, because I just gave you my Indian perspective Right, but there are right. perspectives for every culture out there, and also um, the socioeconomics of it all matters. So, as I am teaching, I really focus in on how my students may be perceiving themselves. Are they coming into me with a um, fixed mindset? Do I need to teach them about growth mindset? And if I do, how do I how do I reach this one kid and get this one kid to understand that that growth mindset applies to him or her as well as to everybody else in the classroom? Because if your culture is telling you um, that that you are either perceived to be less intelligent or that you are not going to be successful in school because um, the kids do come in with these beliefs and we need to be cognizant of that. 
So how do I talk to, approach, reach this kid? Um, do I do it as a whole class lesson on fixed and growth mindset? Do I do it in individual conversation? Um, and you have to really gauge that based on your classroom environment. I do teach about growth mindset um, because I wear this other psychology hat. I think I can get away with it a little bit more in my chemistry classroom <laughs> as well because the kids know I teach psych. So yeah. I start talking about things like mindfulness in my chemistry class. I start talking about things like um, fixed mindset, growth mindset. I talk about culture in my classroom. Uh, they, they are very forgiving of that because I'm also the psychology teacher on campus. So it does give me a little bit more leeway, but I think there's nothing wrong with a teacher educating children about fixed and growth mindsets and how we tend to limit ourselves if we believe that we have that fixed mindset and how we have to, if we can overcome challenges and get things wrong and not be afraid to make mistakes, we can learn from more from our mistakes than we can from doing everything right which is where the rich discourse for modeling really comes in. Because that if you can have kids take risks and engage in conversations where they may or may not be going in the right direction, um, the, the teacher can artfully steer that conversation or allow the kids to work that out for themselves that, oh, yeah, it's not it's not this, it's more likely to be this, or maybe it could be this and this both, because sometimes both explanations are correct. And for me, um, that uh, a true example that jumps to my mind right away is when we talk about density. Um, before students know why different materials have different densities, it could be that there are more particles shoved into a smaller space um, for the more dense material, or it could be um, that each particle, there's the same number of particles in that amount of space, but the particles themselves have different masses. But we leave both open. We don't know which one is right, but both are, both are viable options. So, you know, just allowing students to explore through that learning, to not be afraid of voicing their um, opinions by or their, or their ideas by encouraging them to understand that it's okay to make mistakes and your mistakes are going to be where the true learning occurs. We'll get back to my interview with Mina in just a minute. But first, I want to let you know you can stay connected with other modelers all year round by joining the new AMTA Discord server. What is Discord? It's a text, voice, and video chat app where modelers can share resources, ask questions, and interact in real time. To request your invitation, send the AMTA a message on Twitter or Facebook. Or you can find their Discord invitation video by subscribing to the American Modeling Teachers Association YouTube channel. You're obviously passionate about equity and uh, share with us a little bit about the work you're doing in educating others about equity, especially in the classroom. But uh, I know it goes beyond just the classroom for you. Yes, I, um, 
I started off with my equity work when I was working on my dissertation. Um, I researched this idea of stereotype threat and how stereotype threat is, is basically what I just explained to you earlier, where a, a person who belongs to any group, it doesn't have to be a racial group, it could be a gender group, it could be any group, so if I identify as, as an Indian girl and there's this stereotype surrounding Indians and I inadvertently do something that lets all of the Indians down, um, then that is stereotype threat by living up to that stereotype. Usually it's um, a negative stereotype. So, for example, um, one of the stereotypes out there is that... Um, Black people are not as intelligent as everybody else. And um, I feel uncomfortable saying that, but the stereotype exists. We have to acknowledge it. We have to voice it, right? So with that stereotype, a black student comes into the classroom and they are aware of that stereotype existing. And they respond to the teacher with a, with or to the classroom environment or they they engage in the classroom and they are wrong. In their mind, the threat is that I've just confirmed that negative stereotype for all other black students. That is a heavy burden. That's a heavy burden to bear. And so when we're sitting here as educators wondering why our um, na Native American students or our black students or our Hispanic students are not engaging in class, that is a large part of it. They're not engaging because by engaging and being wrong, they have they are worried about confirming that stereotype. And that is a that is an actual threat. And like any other threat situation, it activates the amygdala, which shuts down cognitive function. And so once they once the uh, once the cognitive function is set, shut down, once the f uh, fight or flight response is activated, you're going to lose that student for at least 20 minutes. They're not going to engage in class. They, they literally cannot because they are undergoing this emotional fight or flight response. It's a physiological response. It's a cognitive response. And it has a massive impact in class. So we need to be aware of that and that's why strategies such as think pair share um, are great because what that does is it gives that student an opportunity to practice what they're going to say before they share it with the whole of the rest of the class they're much more confident now that what they're going to say and how it's going to be received they've practiced saying it so little strategies like that 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 allow the student to um, engage without that whole, everybody's watching me, and if I say something wrong now, I'm going to be judged. My people are going to be judged. Mm. So. Yeah. Share with me what you think your best tip for classroom teachers is, you know, practices in the classroom. What, what would be a, a, a teaching or a modeling tip that you would share with our listeners? So there are so many um, 
things that we as educators in terms of equity have to help our students overcome. Stereotype threat is just one of those things. And the best way to help our students overcome those things is relationships, relationships, relationships. If we can, um, if we can get to know our students, what are their value systems? How do they say their name? Um, what, what are their interests? What, and let them know that you care about them individually as a person. Um, once we do that, what we start doing is building trust. And so once you've built trust with a student, then if you somehow say something that could be conceived as a microaggression, it won't be because that student trusts you and they know that that's not, you don't mean that in a negative way. If you have um, established that relationship and they say something wrong and they are sort of in a stereotype group, they know that saying something wrong in your classroom, it's a safe space. And so if you have created this safe space where you have vested in each kid um, and amongst kids, vested in vested time in building those relationships, building trust among students, but also between the students and yourselves, um, that safe space is a place where students can happily make mistakes. It's a safe space where students can um, explore their understanding without worrying about being judged. It's a safe, sp safe space where students might even voice their concerns about things that they're experiencing outside of your classroom. And I think that should also be encouraged because we as educators are doing more than teaching our kids just science. And I think that sometimes science teachers particularly and math teachers forget that in social studies and language arts, teachers are more likely to want to um, explore the world, right, in terms of literature, explore the world in terms of history. But we tend to stay very focused on content and we, we have to be real cognizant and remember that we're teaching more than content. We're teaching young children who are still exploring the, who they are, who are exploring their own value systems, who are exploring the world around them. And it's okay occasionally to take a little time out and, and address um, microaggressions or address uh, uh, the murder of a black person by a policeman or just in the local neighborhood. We recently had a hate crime in Chandler Unified. Um, address that. It shouldn't be left to social studies and, and language. We can address that too because these people are coming to us with needs. And if you've taken the time to build those relationships and you've provided that safe space, let them have that their, their voice heard in the classroom. So tell us a little bit about this idea of the model minority uh, and um, your thoughts on, on it. Okay. So there is this myth called the model minority myth. And basically what that's, uh, the model minority myth is, um, is that Asians make up this 
model minority. And the myth is that they, uh, aside from the other minorities, because they work hard, they pull themselves up by the bootstraps, and they're very, very successful. And it's it's really a myth that was put out there to um, to suggest that black and Hispanic minorities are where they are because that's where they deserve to be. Um, so it's not the education system or the um, environment that has caused the disparity between Asians and Hispanics. It's the fact that Asians work hard, Asians engage in school, Asians, Asians are the model. I mean, if you can do this, if they can do this, then surely everybody else can do this, right? And so, as I was saying earlier, um, as an Asian student in a classroom, that uh, idea that Asians are this model minority puts a stress on them. And so there is pressure from the family to perform. There's pressure from the, the Asian community to perform. And there's pressure from the teachers to perform. And the, the real problem, especially for our highest performing, so think AP Physics Calc students, the AP, the AP Asian Physics Calc students. The biggest problem for them is that if for some reason they get a B in your class, this is seen as a complete failure. Mm. It is a massive level of stress that they face. And um, studies have shown that the highest rate of suicide among 18 to 22-year-old youth is amongst um, is amongst Asian the Asian student population. Yeah. This is because wow. our students who tend to be highly successful at the high school level go to college, and then they suddenly start getting Bs. Um, they judge themselves. There's pressure on them when they get home. Um, we actually have had a student at my school who used to go to my school, um, ended up committing suicide because he didn't know how to tell his parents that he was failing a class and he took his own life. And this impacts the whole community. It impacts the Asian community, it impacts the school community, it impacts the, the college student community it is massive and so I think it's really important for teachers of those higher level AP classes to be aware that this myth exists to be aware that these students are facing these pressures that are real pressures and that those pressures can directly impact their lives and do directly impact their lives um Depression and suicide is a thing that they will face if we don't start talking to them about, you know, it's okay at a higher level class to get a B. It's okay at a higher level class if you get a C and if you go to college and you decide that, you know, science is not for you because a lot of Asians are pushed into that science, into the STEM arena um, by the community, by their parents, because... That, that's where the high-earning jobs with status are, right? So um, 
it's really hard as an Asian to to hear about that statistic that that these these young children, these young people with so much potential that are so that have got the whole world waiting for them um, take their lives because we're not addressing their social emotional needs. Do you have recommendations on how to speak into their lives uh, before that becomes an issue? I think just even um, having, uh, to my mind, there is nothing wrong with having a warm-up or a cool-down at the end of the uh, lesson where you start by asking students what pressures they're facing. Those AP students, they're taking five, six, seven AP classes. I don't even know how many they take. But I know that they work super hard every single day and they put themselves under pressure for tests and things. So it could be as you're approaching a test that you take some time out and say, hey, what pressures are you facing? How many AP classes are you doing? How is this impacting your life? And is it really something that you need to do? I think just addressing it head on. Um, as a, as a whole class and letting the the students are surprisingly willing to engage. Now, I don't know if that's because they see me and I am an Asian person who has, um, who's highly qualified and gone through all the schooling and obviously put myself under the same pressures as they have, they are under, but they are willing to talk about it and they are willing to, um, they want somebody to hear them, I believe, um, because parents are not there for stop when they want to talk about feeling school pressure. The parents mm. are not where they want to go to. So anybody who's willing to listen, I think that they would be willing to listen. Mm. That's good. What other um, recommendations, insights would you share with our listeners about dealing with uh, the issue of equity in your classroom and uh, really helping to connect with uh, students of the minority? So one of my biggest passions is, is for us to find a way to get more minority faces in front of our classroom. Ideally, I would like that to be by um, engaging with your school principal or your department heads and encouraging um, hiring more minority teachers. Um, But the problem is that we are hiring more minority teachers than we ever have in the past. But the discrepancy between minority and white teachers uh, at at the moment, 80% of the educators in our nation are white. Hmm. And I think it's something like 75% of those are women. So we've got mainly white women in the classroom. Now, I'm not saying that white women cannot reach every, every student. I'm not saying that at all. But students need um, mirrors. Minority students need mirrors. They need to be able to see themselves reflected in front of the classroom. So if we can if we can get more minority students in front of our students then maybe they can have those discussions with their Asian teachers about how hard it is to be doing 10 
10 AP classes or to be to be applying for Harvard or all of those pressures that our model minority students face. But but also think about it from the perspective of our black and Hispanic teachers. When they see themselves reflected at the front of the classroom, they're more likely to buy into the classroom. So I think as educators, we need to be advocating for an increased diversity uh, of teachers. Mm-hmm. Not only does that provide mirrors for our minority students, but it also provides windows for our white students. So the idea of the windows is that as a white student, if all you ever see are white teachers sitting in front of you, you only ever get your culture reinforced. It's just mm-hmm. reinforcement of the white majority culture. But as soon as you get into classrooms and you have black teachers and Hispanic teachers and Asian teachers and white teachers, now you've got lots of windows to look out into other cultures, to start understanding other cultures, to start um, connecting with people in, uh, in a positive way, um, to see these people from these other cultures as professionals. And that will go a long way towards helping um, overcome a lot of the inequities that we see in our classrooms. So I think we can be advocates for increasing teacher diversity. Now, as I said, we're hiring more and more minority teachers, but minority teachers are 25% more likely to leave the classroom than white teachers. Why is that? A large Mm. part of it, I believe, is that Um, minority teachers experience the same barriers that our minority students face. They face stereotype threat. They face, they face microaggressions. They face a lack of opportunities for promotion. Um, So I think that we really need to find ways to keep our minority teachers in the classroom. And that might be just by providing a supportive environment, pulling them into the, it, pulling them into your department and providing support, providing encouragement, providing opportunities for growth. Um, it's, you know, just doing the same things for them, but, but adding that extra level of support and, really avoiding those microaggressions as far as you can uh, will help to keep more te- minority teachers in the classroom. But we desperately need to increase teacher diversity. Hmm. So, Mina, do you have any kind of closing thoughts on uh, what you would like our listeners to know? Just for teachers to remember that everything you do and say sends a message, whether it's implicit or whether it is explicit, and to be really cognizant of that and to be very, very intentional. Be very intentional with your words. Be very intentional with your eye rolls. Be very intentional with your size because those things that we throw away in the classroom, just because we as human beings are exasperated or tired or exhausted or don't want to explain something for the ninth time. Um, those things, they send very powerful messages. And just to be really cognizant of that and to, um, to really address issues of microaggressions or uh, discussions on stereotypes, just really be 
engaged in that process of finding equitable ways for your students to be participants in your classroom. Mina, it's been really great talking with you. Uh, I really appreciate your insights. You sh shared some things that I hadn't fully thought about or, or pondered, and uh, I think you have a lot for us to consider. And I just want to thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to spend it with us on this episode. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. It's been my pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us on another episode of Science Modeling Talks. Head over to sciencemodelingtalks.com and you'll be able to listen to any of our archived episodes and access our show notes, which include guest bios, show highlights, and links to resources that were mentioned during the interview. While you're there, subscribe to our show so you won't miss out on any of our episodes. When you join this community through our email list, we'll send you a link to a lot of awesome resources from the American Modeling Teachers Association. Okay, so that's our show. As always, remember to keep striving for excellence in your classroom.